you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to ask you to open to the book of Hebrews. We looked at a unique telling of the Christmas story out of that book last Sunday, and we're going to be hanging out in these four verses over the course of the next few weeks. I really like this. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Listen to what the writer says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now let's pray together. Father in heaven, this morning as we get into the Christmas story, we're going to ask that you open our eyes so that we can see some new things. We're going to ask that you open our eyes that we might see ourselves. We're going to ask, Father, that you show us how to use portions of that story to allow you to transform who we are, that we might become more like you. I love the fact that this story that we have heard so many times is living and active, as is all of Scripture. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And Father, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. I pray that you will allow all of that to happen this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm willing to bet that most everyone in this room at some point has had a day that has gone horribly wrong. In fact, one of those days, I'm guessing you have probably had where you would look back on it and say, nothing I did today went right. I am so frustrated. You might have even had one of those days where in the midst of your frustration, you reacted to the situations of the day and at night when you were laying in bed and darkness was settling in, you looked back over the events and said, This was not one of my finest hours. I didn't do things the way I should have. Now, if you've never had a day like that, and if you say you haven't, I might call you a liar, but you need to know a little bit of what it looks like, well, I have an example for you. But before we take a look at that, let me set it up by asking how many of you have played golf at some point in your life? Now, I don't mean you have excelled at golf. How many of you have tried to play golf at some point? You're like, okay, there's a number of you. You know that that game in and of itself can be highly frustrating. I've spent enough time on the links to know that I am nothing but a social golfer, and at the end of it, things are going to be pretty bad. But everybody that has ever tried to play golf knows what it means to look back on the events of the day and say, that was not my finest moment. Here it is. Take a look at this. I love the fact that 
The playing of that video shows it happening three times, exact same event three times. That captures the emotion that is obviously taking place there. This guy has had a horrible game and he is done with it. Throws his clubs right into the water. Ray Brossman, our good friend Ray, is quite an accomplished golfer. Ray, have you ever felt like that? <laughs> Never thrown a club. Oh man, good for you. What's that? Not in the water. Wrapped one around a tree a time or two, but anyway, that's what golf will do to you. It'll put you in one of those places where you look back on the events of the day and all you can say is, that was not one of my finest moments. Now, there are a number of other things that happen in life that do that exact same thing to us. They cause us to say, that was not my finest moment. We have all kinds of regrets that get attached to those types of things. Just in a moment of transparency, I would ask how many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Thank you very much. Part of the reason that we all know what that feels like has to do with the sin nature that lives within us. We all have one, a sin nature. I have one, you have one. Maybe you weren't aware of that. If you weren't, Merry Christmas. You have a, <laughs> you have a sin nature. And it causes you to do things that you wouldn't want to do. It causes you to do things that will later force you to say, that was not my finest moment. Even though you don't want to do them, even though you struggle against them, even though you know that it's a reality and it's something that you have to battle against, it's still there for you. And until you get to a place where you are working to conquer that sin nature within you, those moments are going to exist. But once you battle through them, you can turn the whole thing around. And rather than saying, that was not one of my finest moments, you'll be able to say, that was one of my best moments. Now, let's just take a look at the sin nature within the Christmas story. There's a number of examples of it rearing its ugly head in different people's lives. We'll start with Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Angel came and spoke to him and told him that his wife, his barren wife, was with child, and they were going to give birth to this Old Testament prophet that would announce the coming of the Messiah. Zechariah listened to everything the angel had to say, but Then his sin nature kicked in and doubt rose up within him and came out of his mouth and he said, how can that be? And the angel explained it, but Zechariah would go mute for the next nine months. Wouldn't say a word. He paid the price for not controlling his sin nature, not his finest moment. Of course, there was an innkeeper that's been depicted in all kinds of Christmas plays. Little children have shown him, adults have shown him. Everybody knows about the innkeeper. When Joseph and Mary got there, Mary riding on the back of that donkey, and Joseph asked for a room, he said, there's no room here. And more often than not, that character is played as kind of an angry, frustrated man, and he slams the door closed just after he says, you can sleep in the barn. Not one of his finest moments. Of course, there was Herod. Herod, when he was overcome with jealousy, overcome with the thought that a Another king might be encroaching on his territory had all of the babies killed in the area. Not his finest moment. Not at all. The Christmas story has example after example just like those. Things that we can learn from. Things that we could look at and even point fingers at. But then there's a story of victory. I like this one a lot. It comes from Joseph. Let me show you his story. Open up to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, the first chapter. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, 
Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Tucked away in verse 19, we find this pivotal moment in Joseph's life where his sin nature could have taken over and the story would have read completely different. But he chose to pay attention to the things of God. By the word of his power, God was able to turn the whole thing around and we see Joseph in a very positive life. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. Verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. There it was. He had made up his mind. He had set his jaw on what was going to happen. He had determined the path that he was going to follow. He had resolved to divorce her quietly. Isn't that interesting? It really is. Most of the bad decisions that we make in life come from one of two different arenas. The first comes reactionary. When we have had something said to us or something done to us and we instantly react to it, we can oftentimes make very bad decisions that later we would refer to as not our finest moment. They come very quickly and we don't give enough thought before we open our mouth or do something and then all of a sudden we're regretting what's just happened. Or there's this second arena that takes place in our life. It comes from resolve where we have made up our mind, we have made a decision, there is a period at the end of the sentence and we are not willing to move it. We're not going to listen to anything else. We're not going to hear what anybody else has to say. Further information does not matter. We are resolved unto whatever the consequences are. And that's exactly where Joseph stood. Then something great happened. It's the little tiny word that follows the period. But he considered all these things. That's what turned it around for Joseph. And he paid attention to the angel that came to him. The angel brought this message from the Lord, and Joseph had not so closed his heart and mind that he could not receive it. But he considered all these things. And by the word of God's power, the story took a different turn. It moved him from his resolve into the blessing of being able to raise the Messiah in his home, to be the earthly father of Jesus, to bring Mary in and to love her and nurture her and call her his wife. The story took this dramatic turn because of the but. The but followed the period and things changed by the word of God's power. He was open to hear what God had to say. And it's a beautiful story as a result of that.
I want you to know that the same things can happen in our lives. Our worst moments can be turned into our best moments if we will decide to learn from Joseph and people just like him. The Christmas story has a lot to teach if we will pay attention. It's not just something that we're familiar with and makes us feel good this time of year. There is a lot for us to learn from it. So let's unpack Joseph's story just a little bit. Pay close attention to what he was listening to. When he was considering all these things, what was he listening to? The first thing had to do with the name that his son was to be given. Now, Joseph is of Hebrew descent. So the Hebrew language would speak very, very, very pointedly into his heart. We know Jesus as Jesus, but the name Jesus is the English version of the Hebrew name Yeshua. So Jesus comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua. Yeshua, which by the way, I'm not very good at linguistics. I have to rely on other people that know this stuff a lot better than I do to put it all together. The Hebrew name Yeshua is the shortened version of the name Yehoshua, which means, are you ready? Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God, saves. You are to name him Yeshua. God saves. That's what Joseph heard. His son, this baby that Mary was carrying, was God, and God saves. Now, he didn't just hear that as if he heard, you now have a portal unto heaven. That's what a lot of us think of when we hear of salvation. Well, that means that there's a door open for us to get into heaven. We don't have to worry about hell. That's all we want in salvation. The angel brought a deeper message than that to Joseph, and Joseph paid attention to it. Let's go back to verse 19 again. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But, that's the huge word, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Joseph heard. By the word of God's power, that's what he heard. Jesus will save the people from their sins or from their sin nature. The things that you want to do, Joseph, the reactions that you want to have, the things that matter to you, the selfishness that exists within you, which, by the way, sin is very selfish, and that nature that we all have directs us right to selfish acts. Sin is self-promoting, it is self-preserving, and it is self-pleasing. That's what sin is. So now the angel says, and this is actually God saying it, by the word of his power, Jesus has come to save you from that, from your sin nature. In Joseph's world, and this requires some subjectivity on our part, maybe he was a strong-willed individual who once he had made up his mind, nobody was ever going to change it. He sat right on the brink of sinning, kicking Mary out of his life divorcing her quietly and sending her away. If he had some of those natural bents where he would, in a stubborn moment, 
follow whatever path he had determined to follow, no matter what the consequences were, right in this moment he experienced the very first step of salvation when God saved him from making that mistake from his sin. Now, we don't know that to be true. The Bible doesn't tell us that about Joseph. We know that Joseph was the man who married Mary. We know that he was Jesus' earthly father, and we know that somewhere after the age of 12, he falls off the page, and we don't learn much more about him. But this is really quite telling. He had resolved in his heart to divorce her quietly. And then by the word of God's power, that all changed. God turned the whole thing around, and we know the story the way we know it today, instead of Joseph having to look back and say, that was not one of my finer moments. If we will pay attention to those same things, particularly the name of Jesus and what he offers to us, we can see some of our worst moments turn into our best moments simply by doing what Joseph did, considering these things, paying attention to what God has to say. And really, that's all it takes. We have to get to a place where we are willing to accept more information before we make a decision to consider these things. Now, here's kind of a goofy illustration of how that works. When Tina and I first got married, we had made a decision just between the two of us that we would make no major purchases without talking to one another and we would make no major purchases on the spur of the moment. We wouldn't make those purchases that day. We would sleep on it and then go back the next day. Now let me put that in the right light. A major purchase to us in 1989 would have been anything over $4. (laughs) We had no money. And in having no money, we had nothing else either. We did not blend households when we got married. We were in college. So we both brought exactly nothing to the marriage. Everything that we had in our first apartment came from the generous benevolence of our relatives, particularly our grandparents. They went down into their basements and they found things that they had long since decided they didn't want and they blessed us with those things. And that's what went into our first apartment. We had the ugliest gold couch anyone has ever seen. And the only thing that made it look decent was the horrible, horrible floral chair that sat next to it. That was a gift from one of our grandparents, but we had a place to sit, so we were happy. Well, after about our first year of marriage, we thought, let's go out and start looking at some new furniture. So we went to furniture stores, we went to the mall, and we still had zero dollars. So all of that was nothing but window shopping. However, in 1989, furniture stores were offering wonderful deals. A lot of you will remember these. You could buy a new couch, a new love seat, a new bed, everything that you could ever want in 1989 and not have to make a payment on it until 2024. You remember how that worked? Every furniture store ran deals like this. No payments for the first 14 years. And then once you make your first payment, you have 10 days to pay the whole thing off or the interest is retroactive to the day that you bought it. That's the way those things work. Well, there were a lot of times that we stood in the furniture stores thinking we could buy this and there will be no felt consequent for it. 14 years from now, we'll have enough money to pay it off. Let's just go ahead and buy it. Well, we chose to consider these things before we did it, and figure out all the ramifications and not pull the trigger too early, not do something that we were going to regret later on. Took us years to get rid of all of that inherited furniture, 
But we didn't jump into messes that we would be cleaning up for years because we failed to consider these things. Or we had resolved in our heart that we needed those things desperately. Well, that's just a goofy example of how that works. You can apply it to all kinds of different situations in life. It works professionally, it works relationally, it works obviously financially, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. If we will consider these things, even after we have made a resolution, God can continue writing the story. If all we do is put a period at the end of the sentence and we never find the but, then we're writing the story. And it can be pretty disastrous. It really can Dr. Henry Cloud talks about moments like that in pretty pointed language. He says, in modern society and the culture that we live in today, we live by a philosophy of ready, fire, aim. That's pretty good. Now think about it again. Make sure that catches up to you. Ready, fire, aim. Rather than ready, aim, fire, we are just saying, I want this so desperately that I'm going to do it right now and I will figure it out later. Well, what a mess. When we want things so desperately, we will stop listening to all reason. When we want something in our life, all objectivity disappears and we're just going to do what we want. When the world tells us that things should be a certain way, we have now clouded our vision to a point that oftentimes we can't even hear God. That's where Joseph was at. The world would have said, Joseph, she came to you and said that she was pregnant. You know that it's not by you. Get rid of her. Yeah, she's told you that the Holy Spirit is the father of this child. Who in the world is going to believe that? Kick her to the curb. She came to you and told you that she's pregnant and that there was a dream where an angel came to her and told her this elaborate story. Well, obviously, she's nuts. Get rid of her. But Joseph considered all these things. And by the word of God's power, he moved past the period. And God wrote the story. Now look at how that can work in your life. All we have to do is apply what the business world refers to as due diligence. No matter what it is that you're facing, due diligence can help. So in the professional world, that means do the work. Do what you're supposed to do and the story will write itself. In an emotional situation, due diligence says, bring your head into heart decisions that you're making so that your head and your heart are working together. Don't just let one or the other determine everything. Intellectually, it means get all of the information that you can possibly get. Put it all together before you just act or react. Relationally, man, this is a beautiful thing. Relationally, it means pay attention. Due diligence just means Pay attention. Look at the whole history of everything that you have with this other person. In Joseph's situation, here's what that looked like. Most historians would tell you that Mary grew up as a part of Joseph's family. He had known her her entire life. He had a lifetime of history with her. So when she came and said, I've had this dream and I'm pregnant and here's the way it all plays out. Joseph had to look at the full history that he had with Mary and put it all together. He had to consider all of that. And so should we. In a relational situation, that will help us find the truth of passages like this in the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, 
slow to speak and slow to anger. That's due diligence. Relationally, when that gets applied, we can turn things around. We can take our worst moments and turn them into our finest moments because we applied God's word. Well, spiritually, that works in every capacity. Spiritually, due diligence is nothing more than saying, I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to hear what He has to say on this subject. I'm going to seek out His wisdom and His counsel. I mean, God will become the butt behind the period. When you consider all these things, you're considering the Word of God. And by the Word of His power, He will speak to you. He upholds all things, the writer of Hebrews says, by the word of His power. Why would we not believe that that is true of our individual lives? By the word of His power, God upholds everything that you're involved in. Just reverse the process so that you are living by a ready, aim, fire philosophy rather than ready, fire, aim. That's all it takes. I want you to know that when you do that, Something pretty cool happens in your life. You are surrendering to the gift of Christmas. Here's what that looks like. Let's go together to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, the gift of Christmas, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and all authority. Now here's the deep teaching of Colossians chapter 2. Joseph needed an angel to come speak to him. We do not, because we have been filled up with the full measure of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, if you have responded to the gift of Christmas, if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have received the full measure of Jesus Christ, and He lives within you. The Holy Spirit is there to guide you, to direct you, to lead you. That's the deep teaching of Colossians chapter 2. You don't need an angel to speak to you. You need the creator of the angels to speak to you. And you have access to him. And by the word of his power, he can guide your steps and turn your worst moments into your best. It's that quick of a turn. Just like in Joseph's story. Because Jesus Christ becomes the but after the period, you can consider all the things that he offers to you. And you don't have to make the wrong decisions. You don't have to be reactionary. You don't have to resolve yourself in sin to do whatever it is that you want that pleases you or preserves you. You don't have to worry about any of that. Your sin nature begins to disappear because you are growing in relationship with Jesus Christ. And you get the privilege of considering all of God's things. That's the access that you have been granted. It is to heaven, but that means you can live it right now with access to the heavenly realm right now and be transformed by Him. There's actually an often overlooked word in the New Testament that speaks to this exact issue. 
That word is godliness. We don't spend a lot of time talking about that word, and we should. Godliness lives below the surface of religion. Godliness lives in the realm of our attitudes. Godliness is a choice, just like attitude is a choice. Godliness is something that we decide to grow in. And when we do, listen, when we do, something pretty dramatic takes place in our life. I'm going to take you to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Short little verse with great teaching in it. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is the pursuit, the attitudinal pursuit of the things of God. I want Him to direct my steps, not me done it my own way long enough and I've thrown enough clubs into the water to not want to do it anymore. I've had enough worst moments, enough opportunity to look back and say, boy, I regret that. I wish I hadn't done that. This story could have been written so completely different if I would have just paid attention. Godliness is the act of paying attention. That's what it is. It's that moment where we choose to do what God wants us to do and what He has placed in front of us. And the Bible says one of the great benefits of that is contentment. I'll be happy with where I'm at. I'll be pleased. Regrets will be further away from me. And rather than having to look back and say, gosh, I wish I'd have done that differently, we'll be able to say, that worked out all right. That worked out all right. I'm glad I did it that way. I'm glad I chose godliness. I promise you, Joseph was. His story was written by God. As he overcame his own potential sin nature, God finished the story. And Joseph did what he was created to do, what he was born to do. And you can do the same. It's really that simple. Do the spiritual due diligence. See what happens. Just stand and pray with me. Father in heaven, stories like Joseph's are inspiring. But what they really inspire us to do, what He has really inspired us to do is to live in godliness, to live the way that You want us to. Lord, peppered all through the Christmas story, we find, we find accounts just like His that will stretch us, will teach us. Sometimes they'll convict us. Joseph's story offers us great hope and great promise. So does Jesus's. So does Mary's, so does Zachariah's and Elizabeth's. All the stories of Christmas, or most of them, offer us great hope and great promise. But Lord, this one, well, it speaks directly to who we are. I pray that we'll all listen and pay close attention and surrender our sin nature to you. Lord, by the word of your power, Change us. Transform us. Make us into who you want us to be. We're available and we're ready. Lord, I pray that we'll get to see it happening right in front of our eyes. Maybe the most tangible way is for us to be able to look back at the end of each day and say those were good moments rather than the bad ones that they could have been. My prayer for every individual here today 
is that they will get to experience that because of you and the word of your power. In Jesus' name, amen.